Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Warney and Ethan Sachs. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Warney and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs as well as another special guest this week, Amaz from Hearthstone. Hey, how's it going everybody? Welcome, welcome Amaz. We're really excited to have you on the show this week. Oh, this is going to be fun. All right, so we've got a lot of things to take care of this week. So no one's going to be listening to how my week was or Ben's week was. To be honest, probably no one cares about that anyway. But we do have some important information to announce before we get into our sweet, sweet special guest, which is some new patrons this week. So we do have a Patreon page for Lords of Limited, patreon.com slash Lords of Limited, where you can give back to the show if you so choose. Uh, it's an opportunity for you to support the show and for us to give you some sweet perks for doing so. Get access to the Lords of Limited Discord, where people are sharing up a storm of draft logs and what's the plays and what's the picks, places for you to get access to the show notes and a little pre-show recording that we do for you guys. And we also want to shout you out when you join the fray. So this week, we want to welcome Dylan and Mike. Thank you so much for your support of the show. It really means the world to us. Yes, absolutely. We cannot say thank you enough. We have also all three been drafting up a storm of Masters 25, so we need to check in on the trophy leaderboard update. That's right, we do. All right, Ben, you want to lead us off. Uh, I've done 12 drafts so far of Masters 25. I have four total trophies, two of which were on stream yesterday with Amaz. He Skyped into my stream, which was super fun. <laughs> An overall record of 25 and 11 uh, for a 69% win rate. So I have one less draft than you, 11 drafts, one less trophy than you, three trophies. I'm at 22 and 11 for that clean 66% win rate. How about you, Amaz? Uh, okay, so I marked down here. I got 10 drafts done. Uh, I got five trophies. I got one zero two out of those, and the total record is twenty three six. But I think I should actually add the eight uh, eight wins and one loss that I did with uh, Ben no, the other day. No, no, no. What? No. <laughs> that's the Ryan. That's the Ryan Sachs move right there, just to like count all the drafts that you were ever a part of, that you ever thought about. That's that's his move. I mean, you you can you can assimilate Ben's eight and one if you want. I'll allow it. All right, all right. But I just wanted to say that uh, when me and Ben were playing together, I think uh, we played very tight. Like, we were double-checking our um, plays and everything. So that was really good. Yeah, super fun. So before we get into our roundtable, I think it'd be good for our listeners who can't imagine that there's many of them out there, but who aren't familiar with who our guest is. Amaz, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background with Magic, how long you've been playing, how you got into the game, that sort of thing. 
Sure, sounds great. All right, so I uh, started Hearthstone uh, when Hearthstone was announced. It was my first actual card game. You know, I collected Pokemon cards or whatever back then, but it was just collecting. And then all my Hearthstone friends played Magic before, right? So they would talk about all these Magic cards, and I would pretty much feel left out. So I was like, all right, you know what? Teach me how to play. So they're like, oh, yeah, just come and play. And then my first game of Magic was Cube. And uh, that was in... (laughs) Just diving uh... right in. Oh, man, like, uh, I I saw Necromancy as my first card. I was like, hmm, maybe I made a mistake. And it's just like... Just a wall uh, of text. Yeah, and then I made everybody wait a long time. I just draft, like, a mono green deck because that was easy. And then ever since, I just want to, you know, be on the same level as them. So I started in Origins, and then I've been playing ever since, kind of, because I think Magic offers a very fun experience with drafting. I think uh, Mm -hmm. drafting in the limited style is, like, something not other games can offer. You can actually interact with the other players during the drafting portion, right? Whereas if you play Hearthstone Arena, you actually, it's kind of like a sealed pool in Magic, right? Where you kind of you know build your own deck and then you play against other people who build their own deck. So um, I love drafting. That's basically how I started. I attended uh, several limited GPs and I went to a Pro Tour. I appeared on the magic arena reveal thing so i've been doing some things with magic and around there's so it's a, it's a nice community and it's a fun game for sure do you uh so so limited is your your primary love of magic oh yeah limited is so much fun my favorite format is modern masters 3 you know the denrova <laughs> horror craziness or whatever i think i got like ended up with like 60 trophies on uh wow. magic online uh after the format rotate it was it was so much fun 60 trophies in three weeks. Yeah, that is insane. Yeah, I play that a lot. Oh, man. If you love drafting, you are on the right podcast. So what what's sort of your general draft philosophy been like? Do you have like a general approach to it or how you try to figure out new sets or anything like that? Yeah, so I mean, between sets, there's a lot of things that are very similar, right? Like, uh, for example, there's always like a bounce spells in blue. There's always like a burn spell in red and stuff like that. But I think um, when I evaluate a new set, I want to check if, uh, you know, all the keys are there. Like, um, for example, in this set in Masters 25, the bounce in blue is usually sorcery speed, right? Uh, because the bounce spell of Retraction Helix is not that strong. So mm-hmm. I would value cards that, you know, are sorcery speed uh, because I rarely get blown up by like instant bounce stuff. So every time I value a new set, I just have to check things off, right? Like how expensive is the, are the wrath effects, right? How big are the creatures at one mana and two mana and like, you know, uh, how good the removal is and so on. So evaluating cards, not only in terms of like their role in like the world of magic, like a bounce spell or a burn spell, but then how they relate to each other in this particular set. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think a really good example of uh, a card that got worse is like, uh, it was Decision Paralysis from Amonkhet, right? It was four mana, whereas Mm -hmm. um, beforehand, these Frost Breath effects were three mana, right? I still thought Decision Paralysis was really strong in that set because um, there was the exert mechanic, right? So preventing your opponent from like attacking with their stuff was like really strong. So I think that pick was actually pretty high for me. There are some uh, cards that at the face value looks really bad, but you have to play the set to really know if they actually are bad and overcosted and such. Sure, there's no way to know like until you actually play with the cards. Really, right, right. speculating. Yeah. So, do you generally find yourself trending more towards aggressive decks, control decks, combo decks? If you sit down to draft, where where are you going to end up normally? I like drafting a deck that has a good curve. So, I want to be doing something every turn. 
And um, I'm also have the idea that if you end the game with no cards in your hand, then you actually build your deck perfectly, I guess, because you use every resource, right? Uh, if you end the game with seven cards or zero cards, it's still the same thing. So you might as well use every card at your disposal, right? Even my control decks have like a lot of two drops, a lot of three drops to kind of support the bombs, I guess uh, you could say, since, um, you know, if you play you know, a creature every turn until your Niv visit or whatever, then the chances of them having a removal for that card is very, very low because they have to deal with the stuff beforehand. So yeah, my control decks usually don't run a lot of non-creatures, I guess, or like non-removals. That's a super interesting point because I've found myself in in the control decks that I'm drafting in this format. I find myself relying on four or five key cards and not having done a lot before I've played those cards. And then those cards are eating the removal spells. So that's a super interesting way to think about it, like forcing your opponent to react to your earlier stuff before you play your bomb in your control deck. Right, for sure. Because like, um, you know, when you turn to cycle one of the, um, you know, land cycling cards or turn to a prophetic prism or something thirdly, that is a two mana zero zero, right? Like your opponent, you're not putting any pressure on your opponent. So they either just going to keep beating down you or they can advance the game plan and it's going to be bombs versus bombs. Like I never want to be in that situation. I always want my opponents to play to my game plan. Do you have a like general thought about this format? So like Ben and I gave our like outline in our in last week, so people have a, a pretty good idea about at least where we were at before we started playing with it. So with a few days of of Masters twenty five under your belt, do you have any general thoughts or overviews about this set? Yeah, I think um, so. So how I approach it is that you know I identify my uh, favorite colors and I would try to get into my colors uh, as much as I can, uh, if possible. So if there's like a tie between two number one commons. I would choose the color I prefer, right? And mm -hmm. that would be green, black is the colors I prefer to be in, and then red, and then blue, and then white. I think having a preferred color in drafting is actually good because you are probably going to invest at you know, the color you like, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. um, it's good to have a preference. Yeah, that's that's the, the Ryan Sachs philosophy that I think Ben and I have adapted <laughs> yeah, exactly. pretty well. But, but I, I mean, it's sort of counter to what a lot of general limited philosophy tells you about like stay open, like draft what's open for your seat. But I think being aware of what, you, I mean, we talk about this a lot, but being aware of what you like to do and what you're good at is actually beneficial as a drafter, because if you're playing a deck that you like, you're going to play that deck well, you're going to play that better than a deck that you're not happy about. No, no, that makes sense. Uh, I think for this set, uh, it specifically rewards you for staying open because, you know, all the cards are very, very playable, right? Like, even the worst card is uh, very good. Whereas in a normal set, like uh, Ixalan or something like that, um, you can't, you know, be stay open too long. You have to choose a lane fast. Otherwise, the premium cards are just going to all run away. So, yeah, that makes sense. Well, I'm very excited to get into discussing these cards because Ben has been telling me how much we're going to be disagreeing he's like well i can't <laughs> wait can't wait for you and amaz to talk so ben you got a pretty sweet round table for us to look at i do yeah so if you'll both take a seat here i'm gonna read the cards we're gonna have narrowed it down to like four or five picks and we're gonna go about four picks deep since this is a new set and we know not a lot of you may have had a chance to draft it uh 10 times like we all have so pack one pick one you see the following options uh this is perilous mirror two mana for a 1-1 one, one artifact creature, and when it dies, you get to deal two damage to target creature or player. There's Mog Flunkies, uh, one in a red for a 3-3 three, three that cannot attack or block unless another creature attacks or blocks with it. Mana War, two in a blue for a 2-2 two, two. when it enters the battlefield, return target creature to its owner's hand. And Geist of the Moors, one white white for a 3-1 flyer. 
and Zulaport Cutthroat. One in a black for the 1-1 and has the ability whenever Zulaport Cutthroat or another creature dies, a target opponent loses one life and you gain one life. It's only creatures you control die, not whenever any creature dies. Thanks. I, w- I wish I wish it was a Blood Artist, but it's not. I think it's still one of the best, if not the best card in the pack. I think it's between Zulaport Cutthroat and Mana War for me. I haven't had much of a chance to play with or against Zulaport Cutthroat, um, but it seems like it's a pretty sweet powerhouse in any kind of sacrifice deck. Do we do we feel like it goes in other decks as well? I think Zulaport Cutthroat is amazing. In a format where life gain is basically non-existent, uh, Zulaport Cutthroat helps you in racing situations. It also turns all your one attack creatures into technically unblockable, right? So like at the at the late game, because if you smash them, you're going to actually push one damage no matter what. And uh, if you pick up two of these, and then you can go crazy. I think me and Ben actually drafted one deck of two Suliports. And uh, yeah, I think it's one of the best blue, uh, black uncommons for sure. So you don't need like, you don't need to be like comboing with it. It's just going to do work and be good if you're an assertive deck. I think so. Uh, you can just like leave it alone. Your opponent will probably have to kill it because you're gonna be you're gonna keep on playing creatures. Obviously, it gets better in token deck or like a Phyrexian Ghoul or two, but it's uh, mm-hmm. pretty good on Sandlone already. Yeah, that's pretty much a, a good enough argument for me. I think I would I would lean Cutthroat after hearing that over the Mana War. Yeah, that's what I took as well. So all three of us on Cutthroat there, and I do think you play it in every black deck that's not like controlling. It's very, very good. Pack one, pick two, you see the following options. Kindle, one in a red for the instant, deal two damage to target creature or player, and then for every other Kindle in any graveyard, it deals one more. So it counts the number of Kindles in graveyards and adds one for each other Kindle. And Ghost Ship, two blue blue for the two four flyer with blue 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 regenerate. Geist of the Moors again, that's the one white white for the three one flyer. Bayloth Null, four black green for the four five and when it enters the battlefield return two target creatures from your graveyard to your hand up to two rather and chandra's outrage two red red for the instant speed deal four damage to target creature and two damage to that creature's controller i mean bailoth and all is like one of the sweetest cards in the set how could we not take that here I, I i'm like crazy obsessed with that card and i feel like it's one of the it goes so well with the mana cyclers and it's like one of the ways to like not feel like you're just wheel spinning when you you like cycle one of those creatures away there's like a, this full cycle of six drops that have uh two mana for basic land cycling of the color that the card is and i feel like bailoth and all then just picks those up and gives you like a ton of card advantage and it's on color with uh, our zulaport cutthroat that that's what i'd be on taking i think how about you Moss? I think I'd be pretty tempted to take the Bailoff Null. Uh, I think uh, it's pretty close between that and the uh, Geist of the Moors, which uh, actually is the number one white common for me. Uh, a 3-1 flyer is actually insane in this format because whatever deals one damage deals two damage as well. So one is it's basically a 3-2 flyer for me, right? Geist also kind of combos well with Zulaport in the case that if you're beating your opponent down their life to a slow, then Zulaport, once again, does the thing where it just makes all your creatures lethal threats. So I'm, I don't know. I think it's a tough pick, but at the end, I think I would take Geist. <laughs> so are you are you on taking... It's surprising to me that you would take Geist of the Moors over one of the two removal spells in Kindle or Outrage, mm-hmm. and you had said that you like red more than white in this format. So are you are you on like taking... Uh, I guess these like evasive threats over removal spells. Like, is there a removal spell that would be in this pack that you would take over Geist of the Moors? I mean, I would take Geist over Pacifism, for example. Yeah, I, I can get down with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or even like any any white removal or something like that. I, 
can't think of one. Maybe like Disfigure, since it's on color of Zulaport, or like Murder, for example. Uh, I think Bail of Null is kind of like a green card for me at the moment, right? Because right. if I'm picking Bail of Null, then I kind of want to be in green. So I think, um, you know, Bail of Null being a black card doesn't really factor into my equation here. So I, I think I'd be happier with like a 3-1 flyer. I think so. One of, one of the things you said on stream yesterday that I think can help articulate this for Ethan. So we had a choice on stream. We were drafting like a red-green beatdown deck, and we had a choice between Mog Flunkies and Lightning Bolt. And it was actually awkwardly kind of close. And what? and what Amaz, what Amaz, yeah. no, really, it really was. Uh, I don't, I know that's hard to <laughs> to wrap your head around, but we needed two drops. We were an aggressive deck, so Amaz said that Mog Flunkies, if it can attack, is lightning bolting your opponent's face every turn. Like, and I think that's what's coming into play here with the Geist of the Moors versus Kindle for him. Is that true, Amaz? Yeah, and it's also like a Bale of Thor, it's like a six CMC card, right? Like, anytime I have a difficult decision to whether to pick up between two cards, I usually choose the cheaper one. It's probably going to see more play than, uh, you know, a six... A three drop is going to see more play than the six drop in most games. And yeah. uh, I think Bale of No, when, when you cast it, it's really, really powerful, right? Uh, it, it, the game probably ends. But Guys of the Wars, the game doesn't actually end when you play it. But the fact that it demands removal, and then if they do do it, then your next card is better. Or if they don't, they just die. Means that on turn three, it's just better than a turn six play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me. It's tough for me to wrap my head around the bolt versus flunkies thing but uh, i'm gonna have to take your guys word for it I trust we, we took we trust took the you. lightning bolt but at the end of the day i think we would have swapped it i think it was right at the time to take lightning yeah. bolt, but it was very close and i think at the end of the draft we would have swapped lightning bolt for a mock flunkies yeah we would we would we, we definitely agreed that like at the end of the draft yeah we will change lightning bolt for flunkies right now we really want like at least like eight or even nine two drops in our aggro decks yeah that makes sense to me all right what's uh what's pick three here all right, so pack one, pick three, you see the following options. Uh, Kroos and Tusker, this is five green green for the six five with cycling two and a green. And whenever you cycle Kroos and Tusker, you may search your library for a basic land card, reveal that card, put it into your hand, and then shuffle your library. There's Heavy Arbalest. Three mana for the equipment. Uh, equipped creature doesn't untap during its controller's untap step. Equipped creature has tap. This creature deals two damage to target creature or player, and it's got an equipped cost of four. There's Epic Confrontation, one and a green for the sorcery. Target creature you control gets plus one, plus two until end of turn and fights target creature you don't control. There's Fiend Hunter, one white, white for the one, three. When it enters the battlefield, uh, exile target creature and opponent controls until Fiend Hunter leaves the battlefield. And Brine Elemental, four blue, blue for the five, four elemental with morph. It's got a morph cost of five blue, blue. When Brine Elemental is turned face up, each opponent skips his or her next untap step. This is kind of tough. I think we would probably all agree that, well, I don't actually, I shouldn't, I should never start that sentence. We should all agree. <laughs> How is that going to be true? Uh, I think that Fiend Hunter is the best card in the pack in a vacuum, the one white white removal spell. But Kroos and Tusker goes very well with Baloth Null, and I think you want to more draft like synergies than just a pile of good cards in this format. Like, yes, you're going to be ending up with a pile of good cards because this format is, is overpowered a little bit. But uh, but I still think those like synergies or synergy-based decks are going to fare better. And I think that Crows and Tusker fits the bill in terms of it being able to cycle with Baloth and all, and then you get it back with your 6-drop and then drop it down uh, as your 7-drop to follow up um, after you've cycled it and gotten that 2-for-1 that from it. That, that That's, I think, what I would be on here. How about you? If you had if you had Zulaport Cutthroat, and then would you have taken Geist of the Moors or Bayloth Null last pack? Uh, yeah, for me, I would take Geist of the Moors. So then okay. here's a very easy Fiend Hunter for me, right? Uh, it's like, sweet! I got a very nice uh, 
you know, creature that comes with a removal, pretty much. So I'll be very happy. If I took Bailoff Null uh, in the last pack, which is on you guys, I would actually be on Epic Confrontation here. Crosin Tusker is basically like a three-mana divination, and I don't think I want a three-mana divination in Limited, I guess. Epic Confrontation is like a very, very premium removal spell for me, and, um, you know, it just got to deliver the beatdowns. Epic Confrontation does deliver the beatdowns. Where where are you at on Epic Confrontation these days, Ben? I think it's the best green common still. My experience, I've been pretty underwhelmed by it just because there's so much good instant speed interaction in this format that I'm very nervous to like run that out into open mana. Like I think one is fine, but uh, I'm not like super crazy on stocking up on these because I think there's a lot of setup cost to them. And even once you have the setup cost, like a good creature on your side to fight the creature on your opponent's side that you then have to time it well and not get blown out by counter spell or removal spell or any sort of interaction like that. Well, so let me let me preface that I, I or qualify that statement rather. So I think it's the best green common in a deck that's proactive. Like, so I don't think it's going to be a very good removal spell in a controlling type deck, but in any mm. sort of a an aggressively slanted mid range deck or beatdown deck, it's very very good because right you're deploying threats that your opponent then has to tap out to answer, and then they're going to be tapped out a lot of the time to clear the way for your epic confrontations. Well, you guys keep talking about these proactive decks. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what, do we, what, do we, what do you mean here? Like uh, not like land cycling on two and three and four like doing nothing that's what we're talking about yeah that that, that would be what we're talking about it's uh, <laughs> right. very interesting i'll have to try that sometime <laughs> yeah to add on to that a little bit um every time i play a masses 25 draft and my opponent cycles on turn two i'm like wow i, I got this because i can actually play any two two or even a two one from like there's a lot of two one on red creatures and you know they're losing right yeah. Like if you if you actually draft a cycling deck, you actually don't want to cycle in turn two, right? You actually want your two drops, your three drops or whatever, and then you want to play your cycling creatures at cycling. It's just that cycling creatures actually do have a big cost to them. It's the, uh, in that you're playing a worse creature, for example, like even the best one, like Twisted Abomination, a six mana five three, there's better six mana creatures. And you're playing a worse cycler, whereas like you're playing a worse, you know, two mana, let me fetch a land to get into my late game. So there's a real cost to p- picking uh, cycling cards because yeah. they're zero zeros. Like I like, like I like to say they're zero zeros. So um, I think Cross and Tusker in the end of the day is a seven mana six five. A seven mana six five is not good at all, right? Um, and a three mana draw two is not spectacular. But I think uh, fight effect in the green, where you know removal doesn't come easily in green, is really strong in this uh, set as well. There's like spike shot goblins and merfolk looters, and you know mesmeric fiends. It, it, there are there are creatures that you need to kill and flyers, yeah. right? So I think the uh, epic is easy for me. And the and the creatures you need to kill are generally small. Like I don't think I don't think it's tough to like have a good matchup for your epic confrontations. Yeah, I think so. And I think. That makes a lot of sense to me that like what you said, Ben, about, well, if you're deploying threats, your opponent has to answer them. Or if they don't, then you don't need the epic confrontation because like you're you have the onboard advantage anyway. Yep. So but epic confrontation and Bail of Null probably don't go in the same deck or like the same kind of deck, right? Like, I don't feel like Bail of Null is like a curve topper for an aggressive deck unless I'm I'm missing something. I think it could be fine. So my point is, you don't need to force the synergy, right? Like, you don't mm. need land cyclers for Bail of Note to be good. You could also use your creatures to attack, and when your opponent kills that, you can use Bail of Note to get it back, right? It's not mm-hmm. like you need cyclers for that card to be good. Yeah, that's fair. Like, you don't, yeah, you don't need to... Things are going to end up in the graveyard by turn six, and if they don't, you're probably winning anyway. Yeah, most probably. Yeah, uh, that's fair. 
Yeah, so I had also, uh, I went Zulaport, Cutthroat, Baloth, Null, and I took Gross and Tusker here. I think in hindsight now, I would be on Epic Confrontation after drafting with Amaz. Yesterday, I've been brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> and so Ethan's got Zulaport, Cutthroat, Baloth, Null, Gross and Tusker, and Amaz has got Zulaport, Cutthroat, and the Geist of the Moors into Fiend Hunter. So moving on to pack one, pick four, you see Thresher Lizard, two and a red for the three, two. And if you have one or fewer cards in hand, it turns into a four, four. Red Elemental Blast, this is a powerful sideboard card, single red mana to counter target blue spell or destroy target blue permanent. Arbor Elf, single green for the 1-1, tap to untap target forest. Rancor, uh, green mana for the enchantment, enchanted creature gets plus 2, plus 0, and trample, and if Rancor would be put into the graveyard from play, you return it to your hand. And another Geist of the Moors here, one white white for the 3-1 flyer. Well, I have a, a guess about what Amaz would take. <laughs> this is perfect. My draft is going super well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so you'd be on that, that Geist of the Moors number two here, yeah? You, now For you're sure. Just like, definitely in white, solidly, got some good good removal spell and two good uh, flyers. Yeah, two really good flyers. And you guys would be on the a black green train. Just like a couple of good green cards here. And yeah, Rancor is really nutty. I, I, I love this card so much. It... Your opponent needs to deal with it, but then if they deal with it, you get it back, and so on. Super crazy aura. I, I have Rancor on my... I mean, I was already thought this card was was great. I think I had it as my number two green uncommon last week, but I still have it as an overperformer. I think this card is just, like, even better than we think it is. It's really impressed me, and it's... Every time my opponent plays it, I groan. Yep, it's really strong. Yeah. I think, like, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm for- forcing the synergy thing too much. I think if I was on Baloth and all into Tusker, then I would want to take Arbor Elf here to, like, try and ramp into my expensive spells and be feeling like I don't need Rancor to, like, beef up my, my big creatures that I'll be ramping into. But it feels like there's a world where going Epic Confrontation into Rancor leads you into a better, uh, what are you guys calling it, a proactive deck? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, you can just play your stuff no matter what, right? Yeah. This, like, there are a lot of cases, in my opinion, that Arbor Elf would be better than Murder. Because you can play Arbor Elf no matter what, but you can't play Murder no matter what, right? So, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's like a different philosophy here. But yeah, I'm surprised that you guys would click Ranker because given the ramp strategy uh, that you guys are on, Arbor Elf seems to be pretty good for you. Yeah, I, I took Ranker here. I think Ethan would have been on Arbor Elf. I was a little all over the place here, and I had just come off of a draft where Arbor Elf was really bad for me, so I was a little down on it. I remember that. Sweet. Yeah, good roundtable there. Um, we're going to run through some quick sort of guidelines for how we've been drafting this format and how we think you should be drafting this format. This format is like back to basics for draft, for sure. Yeah. So like staying open, trying to find your lane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So wh- why don't you run us through a little bit of that, Ethan? And Amaz, if you have anything to chime in and, and add on here, feel free. All right. Picks one through four, which is sort of the strategy we've been touting for, for most of the formats that we've had on the podcast, but you want to pick the most powerful, flexible cards possible for you. So you want cards that are good in many different types of decks, and this is usually bombs and removal, so we've been talking about the, the acronym BREAD for a number of weeks now, because we had, had sort of switched that up for Ixalan with BEARD, um, but you want to take the, the B and R, bombs and removal, early because you want to have really strong threats in bombs and really strong ways to answer those threats in removal. And then as you move towards picks four through eight, these are the really important picks in pack one for uh, this format. These are when you want to pick cards that have high synergies, two card combos, or lead you down an archetype uh, and try to feel out what archetypes are open. So if you're looking at, you know, you've got a couple 
good red removal spells and uh, maybe some sort of like an arbor elf. And now you're moving into, oh, I want to go like red, green, what? What is the red, green archetype that you're looking at? Well, you see some hordling outbursts and you're going to try and go into a token strategy or you see some, I don't know, nettle sentinels and mog flunkies. And these are like aggressive one and two drops. And so maybe you're going to go do a red, green beatdown deck. You grab a rancor out of the pack. So looking at cards that, that go into a specific archetype or lead you down a path to to drafting that archetype. And then you want to be paying attention to what wheels. So picks 9 through 15, pick up really strong sideboard cards. That's where I'd be grabbing like those red, red elemental blasts and blue elemental blasts or disenchants, things that like are going to be aces when you pu- pull them out of the sideboard. A plummet is in this set as well. Or you want to pick up cards that have uh, synergy or potentially things that are wheeling. This is when I often find myself looking at like, oh, is this this aggro deck open because I'm seeing these these vampire lacerators come around. That's the the single black 2-2 that uh, deals you a damage on your upkeep if your opponent uh, has more than 10 life. Um, but things like that, things that are like coming on the wheel that feel like they shine in a particular deck, those are also going to be signals about maybe what your seat should be doing. I agree. And this is oftentimes like picks 9 through 15 when I find myself, if I do get in an aggro deck, getting into an aggro deck, like if I'm wheeling really aggressive one and two drops, because uh, mm-hmm. I don't really want to necessarily spend early picks on those. Uh, like Amaz was having to twist my arm on stream yesterday to take some early Mog Flunkies. <laughs> uh, I, I want to be, be wheeling my Mog Flunkies, and that's how I want to get into my aggro deck. Yeah. I think that's specifically true for pack one. I think once you know you're in that archetype, maybe you, you take them higher. Maybe you take them over Lightning Bolt. Who knows? Yes, absolutely. I agree. Yes, specifically for pack one. So the best decks in my experience so far have been uh, highly synergistic and have really clear focused uh, plans, goals, all their cards work together. So some of the some of the decks that I've seen that have performed really well, mono colored aggro decks, I've seen mono red, I've seen mono black. I've seen mono white. I've seen some insane uh, monocolored aggro decks on Twitter. I have not had the chance to play them yet, but they've looked very strong. Two-color aggressive decks. I got to do some of this with Amaz on stream yesterday. And even just two-color synergy decks that have like a very clear plan, like a black-red sacrifice deck, a blue-red spells deck, uh, maybe like a white-black or a blue-white blink deck with some cloud blazers. That's the three-white-blue for the 2-2 flyer that draws you two guards and gains you two life white green or white red green red tokens like with some zodahedron grinders and some hordling outbursts that's the one red red make three one one tokens and combat tricks to pump them etc there's a blue black tempo deck where you play cheap blue and black cards and you try to like you know tempo your opponent out with mana war the two and a blue two two bounce a creature and counter spells and things like that so all of those uh making sure you've got a plan in those two color decks and there's even multicolored good stuff decks although i will say as much as it pains me i don't think like the three four five color decks are the best decks in the format, but I do think they're good when they come together, and I think you need to have them as a tool in your draft arsenal. Yeah, I I agree, and I love to dirtle, but I I agree that I don't think it's the best thing. It's certainly the thing that I have the most fun doing, and all of my trophies have come from four- and five-color decks. But I don't think it's the best thing to do. It's they're, The decks are, as we'll talk about, I think, once we look at that archetype, it's very dependent on you getting open, opening or getting past rare and uncommon bombs, um, which is not really where you want to be when you're drafting an archetype. Do you have any thoughts on what you think the best decks in the format are, Amaz? Like if you had your choice of decks to draft? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, most likely of all the two-color synergy decks, uh, those are usually very, very strong. Um, it's very hard to beat like a black-red sacrifice deck, right? You kind of have to sometimes run into the Phyrexian Gold Act of Treason. If you don't have the removal for Phyrexian Gold, you just got to pray. They don't have it, right? Yeah. The three, four, five multicolored, dirty, super shenanigan decks, uh, I, I'm super off that unless I have a board sweeper. The fact that sometimes 
you know, turn two, you're cycling for a car, you know, turn three, you're cultivating, you're going to be behind on board, like, so much, right? You just have to blow your opponent out. And uh, if you get one of the three um, board sweepers, then I would be okay playing that deck. But otherwise, I'd rather just be, you know, playing my two drops on two and three drops on three. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. I do think that sweepers are really important, living death being the premium one, uh, because it works so well with your like wheel spinning of land cycling on two and three and getting creatures in the graveyard and that sort oh, of thing. Oh yeah. I do think that another reason that the two color like synergy decks or the two color aggressive decks are good is there's so many good ways to close out the game in this set. There's so much burn. There's so many ways to push creatures through. Zulaport Cutthroat puts your opponent in a bind. There's evasion. There's just really, like, and I, I think the cards are good enough that you don't really necessarily need to stretch into your third, fourth, fifth color to have, like, a really high-powered level deck. Yeah, that's very true. I think this is something that we have uh, a little bit later in the show, but you're just not short on playables in this format. Even if you like waffle around picks, like you're gonna make playables has been my experience. Like I haven't really ever had a thing where I like by the end of pack two, I'm like, oh man, I only have 12 cards I can play. Like you're, you're so often having like 30 cards that you could choose from to put in your deck at the end of the draft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that that makes these uh, these two color decks probably the best because you're just never short on playables and you can really find what lane you want to be in. So what what sort of signals uh, do you see for some archetypes in this format then? I think in tokens, there's a lot of really clear ones. Kongming, I think, really excels there. This is two white white for the 2-2 two, two, uh, that gives all other creatures plus one plus one that you control. Mm-hmm. Um, she's really, really strong in a tokens deck. Uh, Valor and Akros, this is the enchantment I was touting last week. I'm a little down on this one. Uh, so this is three and a white. <laughs> Whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, all creatures you control get plus one plus one. It's super powerful if it works, but as Amaz would say, uh, four mana zero zero, right Amaz? Yeah, I mean, you've got a combo with this card with White Mane Lion, and even that, I don't like it, because White Mane Lion by itself is not really an insane card. It's a 2-2 two, two that you can't play on 2, right? So I, I'm not a fan of Fowler and Akros. Yep. Uh, I, I'm also a little down on that. I think it's cute. Uh, Promise of Bunray, though, however, I do think is very strong. This is 2 and a white for the enchantment. And when Promise of Bunray dies, you sacrifice it. Or no, sorry, rather. When a creature you control dies, you sacrifice Promise of Bunray, and then you make 4 one, one, uh, white spirit tokens. That card has been very impressive, even just not in necessarily a token synergy deck. Just I think it's a rawly powerful card. Yeah. And then Broodhatch Nantuko, this is one and a green for the 1-1, one, one, and whenever it's dealt damage, you make that many 1-1 one, one green sapperlings, and it's also got Morph, uh, so you can cast it as a 3-mana 2-2, two, two, and then pay 2 and a green to flip it face up for the surprise value of getting those sapperling tokens. So seeing those like cards like picks 5 through 8, I think all would lead me towards maybe wanting to draft a tokens deck. Mm-hmm. Though I think you're right about Promise of Bunray not necessarily, like, I think that's just a good card that goes in white decks. It's like 3-mana 4-1-1s with suspend, sort of. You're going to get those 4-1-1s with Promise of Bunray on the battlefield, almost certainly. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you have, like, the uh, evasive flyers that they have to kill. And then, yeah, three mana 4-4s are great, right? <laughs> I am all for that. Yeah, I th- thought you might. And especially in a format of uh, of morphs, of three mana 2-2s, two a three mana 4-4 four four seems pretty good. Mm-hmm. So these multicolored control decks that I love, surprise, surprise, I think are uh, work best off the back of powerful rares and some of the powerful uncommons, specifically Balothnol, the one that we uh, discussed in the round table. That's the four black green that returns two creatures from your graveyard or up to two creatures from your graveyard to your hand when it comes into play. Um, I think that really synergizes well with the fact that you do have to run some some basic land 
cyclers. Those are the cycle of six drops that you can pay two to find a basic land of their color. And there's a lot of fixing, as we talked on the podcast last week, and Cultivate and Utopia Sprawl, even like Ash Barons and, uh, oh, I forget the, the, the name of the other one that like comes into play tapped and then you can pay two to find two basic two lands that share a type or whatever myriad landscape yeah myriad landscape name that card coming mm. in that, that card is not good <laughs> no it's not good it uh but there is a, an abundance of fixing so it, it makes these decks possible but you need to have because you are going to be doing so much work to fix your mana and playing a bunch of three mana zero zeros as a mod would, mods would call them like the cultivates or the crows and tuskers when you're cycling mm-hmm. you need to have ways to make up for that so sweepers like living death or pernicious deed pyroclasm i think helps you make up a lot of ground here and that's an uncommon um these are i think cards that lead me into this deck and then getting past like a baloth null or a cloud blazer things that can help me recoup some some loss of resources or recoup some life like cloud blazer can those are cards that make me think like okay well i at least have some tools to make this deck viable yeah, so I think uh, specifically Pyroclasm is maybe a little worse than normal against aggro because there's a lot of overpowered two drops. Like, right, Mog Flunkies is a two mana three three. Erg Raiders is a two mana two three. There's the green white gold uncommon that's a two mana three three. I think it's less good than it would normally be at like killing your opponent's early aggression in this format. It's still good, but not great. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to kill everything. You're not going to be able to go like, I do nothing for four turns and then play Pyroclasm. But even if it won for, like, in those decks that are playing Mog Flunkies and Erg Raiders, those are decks that are going to have Jackal Pups and Vampire Lacerators as well. So, like, you're going to get something when you cast Pyroclasm. It's going to help stem that bleeding. Sure, I agree. So, thoughts on Cultivate, Amaz? How do you feel about that card? Oh, man. Okay, so this is, the, this is my philosophy on control decks, right? It's really a uh, rich man's deck. And rich means, uh, you know, rich in terms of, like, bombs and rares and mythics and stuff like that, right? When you cultivate into a bomb... It's much worse than playing, uh, you know, two drop, three drop into bomb, I guess. Because, like I said, like if your opponent has, like, any removal or any creatures on the field, you want creatures to fight creatures. You don't want to be, you know, essentially developing no board on your turn three. I mean, sure, it makes sense. But the fact that your bomb now needs to make up a two for one or even a three for one because your cultivate was a zero for one one, right? Like, you did establish the board. Your bomb really needs to kind of carry you. Whereas... If you don't have Cultivate and you just, you know, play your bomb naturally when you have enough lands, then your other cards actually do carry. And the fact that the bomb gets a two for one is a real two for one, right? So every time you cast, I think, every time you cast Cultivate or like, you know, even like a Prophetic Prism or a Land Cycler, you're giving up board. And that means your bomb has to do even more, like, uh more duty to actually carry you through your lack of an early game. So I'm very, very off Cultivate. So here's my question for you in relation to like these multicolor decks versus like curving out decks. Awesome. Okay. This is something that we discussed when we were talking about like avoiding the aggro trap in Rivals of Ixalan. And I don't know what your thoughts about that format were. I'd love to maybe maybe get that as a follow-up. But my my question is those decks, like when you when you have curve out decks, I think a lot of your agency as a magic player comes in the draft portion. So you're like drafting a good curve. You're like picking cards. I mean, you're making tough decisions like Mog Flunkies versus, versus Lightning Bolt. No joke. Like I think that that is really interesting when you're drafting an aggro <laughs> deck. But then you're sort of at the mercy of what is my opener? Does my opener seven give me this like this curve that I want? And I feel like you you get sort of variance 
a little bit, whereas these decks where I have Cultivate or Card Draw or Card Selection or Cycling, that gives me as the player a lot more like choices to make in terms of how the game plays out rather than like, did I draw one drop? Did I draw a two drop? That, that's sort of how I feel. And sometimes when I see these decks play out on people's streams, I go, yeah, like you're just sort of at the mercy of like, oh, well, I drew, drew six lands and so now I'm flooded or things like that. Awesome. What is your take on that, I guess? Okay, perfect. Um, so, uh, to... There's a lot of points, actually. So the first yeah, point is... Uh, no, no, no problem. So the first point is uh, you, you bring up the mercy of a deck. I think when you play a control deck, you're actually more of a mercy to your deck because if you start your hand with any bombs, like any of the six, seven drops or whatever, then your hand mm-hmm. is effectively down a card, right? You right. want to be doing your early game stuff early on. Plus... The problem with Cultivate is that even in the control decks, you might actually end your curve at 6, okay? Like, sure, you might have 4, 6 drops or whatever, but then your 7th land and your 8th land is actually not that good. And when you play Cultivate, you actually draw specific lands and you specifically play them, right? Uh, You're just getting your lands a bit faster, which is very unintuitive to what a control deck wants to do, right? Like, a control deck just wants to trade a lot of one-for-ones and then your bombs trade two-for-ones or three-for-ones, right? Mm-hmm. So then you start drawing your seventh land and your eighth land and those don't do anything. So then now you have to put in cards like Sift or like, you know, cards that actually discard those lands because when you draw them, they're actually zero value, right? And mm-hmm. those are also like really awkward because you're going to draw into more lands and stuff like that. So I'm just saying that like the bombs have to do double duty, whereas when you play a, um, you know, aggro or like even a mid-range deck, right? Right. You play, you establish a two-drop, you establish a three-drop, and they're always going to be there. And if you flood out, then, hey, control can flood out too. So it's actually the same. Well, but but I think control decks, you generally are going to have like maybe mana sinks or or you have like some some flood insurance in terms of maybe some cards like Sift, which I agree. Like you have to sort of like be ahead enough on board or at parity enough on board to be able to cast a card like sift that doesn't affect the board so i I hear what you're saying in in that sense but you know uh i feel like i would rather i've more often will have places to put that mana in more late game decks than an aggro or mid-range deck yeah for sure i just think there is like a real cost and a real downside when you put six drops in your deck and sure they have cycling but when i play like for example when i play a control deck with uh cycling and they're like um you know the twisted abomination there's storyline rangers and whatnot and have three mm-hmm. lands i just never cycle them even if i miss out on land drops like i just can't lose this bomb because if i draw into my seventh land i know i'm gonna lose out on a draw yeah i hear that all right, so these monocolored aggro decks that we're looking at, these, uh, these I think, base black, red, and green are the things that the colors that I think are the strongest because they not only have the powerful one drops, the jackal pups, the mog flunkies, and the nettle sentinels, but they have really strong two drops to, to back those up with. So there's mog flunkies in red, there's crimson mage in red, that's the two one that can give creatures haste for a single red mana. In black, you've got Erg Raiders, that's the one in a black two three. Uh, Nizumi Cutthroat, that's one in a black for the 2-1 Fear Can't Block. And even in green, you've got a 2-drop that scales with the game in Timber Pack Wolves. That's the catch em all 1 in a green 2-2, but it gets plus wolves 1 for each other Timber Pack Wolf that you uh, have on the battlefield. I think Stampede Driver is good as like a mini uh, overrun effect. Rancor that we talked about uh, in the, the round table, that single green plus 2 plus 0 trample enchantment. Like There is a lot of good one and two drops in the Jund colors in this format. And I think any combination of going monocolored or two colored in those combos is uh, is a really good recipe for a strong aggro deck. 
I would agree. I think uh, specifically in red between Jackal Pup and Frenzied Goblin. So Jackal Pup's uh, the red mana for the 2-1, and when it takes damage, you take damage. And Frenzied Goblin is the single red mana for the 1-1, and when it attacks, you can pay red, and target creature your opponent controls can't block this turn. I thought before Skyping with Amaz yesterday, I would have thought Frenzied Goblin was pretty bad, like worse than Jackal Pup, and I think it's way, way, way better. Mm. Can you kind of explain, Amaz, your thoughts on Frenzied Goblin that you were you were telling me yesterday? Sure. Uh, so Frenzied Goblin is a very good card because it's... What's that called? Called... Hammer Skull Batterhead or something like that from Ixalan. Territorial, territorial <laughs> Hammer Skull. <laughs> yeah, that one, right? So it's basically that effect on a one drop, right? Where it actually just applies a pacifism to your opponent's creatures and it just enables all your attacks to be good. Um, you just keep on going face, I guess. So that's not really a um, an effect we see at a one drop. So it actually helps you push more damage. So it makes your mob flunkies better, right? Very, very strong card. Uh, I, I would like draft a million of those i think it works especially well in tandem with mog flunkies because right you want to curve one drop into mog flunkies and of the two frenzy goblins way better than jackal pup because they can attack into your opponent's one drops and i think the two ones like savannah lions jackal pups sometimes are fine but sometimes they can be really bad too if your opponent plays like a dust legion zealot or a squadron hawk if you're staring down those cards on the other side of the table uh like x ones that replace themselves like so dust legion zealot draws you a card squadron hawk finds more squadron hawks those can be be trouble staring down if you're playing cards like jackal pup or savannah lions that makes a lot of sense to me if you look at white and blue so blue's got like phantasmal bear as the, the their one mana two two mm-hmm. um but no like good aggressive follow-ups so like phantasmal bears i think not what you want to be doing um unless you're maybe pairing it with with black for a deck we're about to talk about uh and white like the two drop in white is squadron hawk which is I think really better in a, a go wide deck or uh, a more grindy synergy based deck like a, a white black sacrifice deck say or something like that rather than it being good in aggro because playing a two mana one one is not the best. But it's a two mana. I think Squadron Hawk is fine in aggro. It's a two mana evasive one one which I think is pretty good. And I think a lot of the aggressive white based decks do have some go wide synergy. I don't know. I think Squadron Hawk's a fine aggressive card. Yeah. Nah, it's flood insurance or uh, mulligan insurance, I should say. So that that makes me happy. All right. So next deck we've got here on the list is Blue Black Tempo, aka the Marshall Sutcliffe. Uh, <laughs> I didn't realize that this was a thing in the format until I was drafting. I guess yesterday I finally put it together that all the cards from Cube that Marshall loved to pick up for this Blue Black Tempo deck were in in this format. The idea behind this deck is that you're trying to get ahead early with one drops and two drops, like maybe the Phantasmal Bear, the blue man- one mana, two two, or the black, single black for the two two, the Vampire Lacerator. So you play those cards and then you try to leverage like maybe three, four mana wars. So that's two and a blue for the two two, bounce target creature to its owner's hand, and counter spells and things like that. So this deck is like get ahead, stay ahead. Yeah. That's the thought here. And so supernatural stamina really shines here. So I think lots of the cards that are good in this deck too, you can pick up late. So mana war and counter spell, I think, and removal, like the black removal those are the cards you want to be picking up early and then trying to like pick up those single mana two twos a little later uh, in pack one and that's kind of how i would try to get into this deck the thing that's so scary about this deck i think is how much all of the cards trade up on mana like disfigure and supernatural stamina are trading with like three drops and four drops and so you're able to double spell or play a spell and hold up counter spell or mana war plus disfigure. Like you can do a lot of like really nasty turns with this deck in, in terms of like double spelling and doing what you said, getting ahead and staying ahead. So Amaz, you had some pretty interesting thoughts on Mana War yesterday in aggro versus control decks. You want to share some of that here maybe, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's just a very simple idea that Mana War is better if you have another creature on board. 
than when you're just playing Mana War by itself just to buy back the board. Basically, the reason is you can attack with your creatures after you cast the Mana War if you do it that way. So one drop, two drop Mana War makes Mana War stronger. Whereas if you're playing it in a control deck, it's still a fine creature. It slows your opponents down. But at that point, it's just a three mana, two, two, bounce your creature. You don't get any extra value out of it. Yeah, so some good defensive speed, but you're really leveraging the power level in an aggressive deck, which I agree with. And I... I think I when I pick that card now I'm trying to slant. It makes it makes me want to try to be more aggressive, I think, than prior. For sure. Uh, another two color synergy deck that we've got on the list here is the black red sacrifice deck. So I think if you start off your draft with maybe a Zulaport Cutthroat or uh, some Hordling outbursts, and you start to see uh, some late active treason, so that's the, the the really strong payoff for this. If you've got some sacrifice outlets in Phyrexian Ghoul or Fallen Angel in black, you get active treason. That's the two in a red. Grab a creature from your opponent. It gains haste, untap it, and then you give it back to them at end of turn. Well. If you have a sacrifice outlet, a way to get rid of that creature, then they don't get it back at end of turn. Enthralling Victor is the uncommon 4-mana 3-2 in red uh, that steals a creature with, uh, I believe it's power 2 or less. And so that's another way, it's conditional, not like Act of Treason, but another way to grab a creature from your opponent and then use a sacrifice outlet uh, to kill that creature. So when you see those cards late that other decks shouldn't want, like Act of Treason, it can be a fine like game ender in an aggro deck, but that's, I think, in my opinion, pretty situational. Uh, and this card really shines when you have a way to just like turn it into a removal spell. Um, so I think when you when you back up, like, start off a draft with some good red and black removal or, uh, you know, some good key cards like Zulaport Cutthroat or Fallen Angel, and then when you start to see those other pieces late, that's how you can can get into this deck. So speaking of Zulaport Cutthroat and Fallen Angel, we were talking about this on stream yesterday about, like, top black uncommons and, and why Zulaport Cutthroat might be better than Fallen Angel, Amaz. Do you want to you wanna talk about that a little bit? So my main point of Fallen Angel being not as good is that it's five mana. Like, mana cost is very important to me. The cheaper the cards are, the easier to cast it, not only early game, but you can like double spell in like turn five or turn six and so on like that, right? And Fallen Angel effectively, you know, it finds good and all, but it's still it, it's still like a Phyrexian Ghoul effect. So I want to be paying three mana for this effect. And when I sacrifice creatures, like when I have a lot of tokens and I have a Phyrexian Ghoul attacking, it's effectively the same as a Fallen Angel with a lot of tokens attacking, right? Whereas they don't get a choice mm-hmm. to block the Fallen Angel, maybe, or they just have to remove it. So um, I am not big on that card. Oh, another point I want to bring out for this uh, archetype is that you have to be very careful of the number of Act Treason effects versus the Ghouls uh, or the Enthralling Victors effects, right? So um, I think for me, every three enablers, I would pick one Act of Treason. So for me to play two active treasons, I need to have like six of these sacrifice outlets before I do that. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think you want more sacrifice outlets than active treasons. I'm normally on two to one, I think. Yeah. What makes you say three to one? Because the card is not good by itself. Uh, I, for, yeah. for my deck to be good, well, at least my drafting style, every card needs to carry their weight. And when you have an active treason stranded in your hand, that is not good. Yeah, I guess you can think about it like splashing. Like if you want like three green sources to splash a green card, it's like, well, I want three sacrifice outlets so that active treason isn't dead. Sure, yeah. It's kind of like a high ratio for me, I guess. I think that was my biggest takeaway from you Skyping into street- my stream yesterday was that you want every card to pull its weight. Like, so for example, all these discussions about like Valor and Akros is a four mana zero zero or Cultivate is a three mana zero mm-hmm. zero. Like, so Cultivate, you need to cultivate into playing a very powerful card for Cultivate to pull its weight. Or Valor and Akros, you need to play Valor and Akros into creatures for it to pull its weight. And when those do things, when those things do work out, it's powerful, but it can also, you can also just be powerful by curving out with good, efficient cards that have minor synergies across your curve and win that way. 
Yeah, I think this is a very like this discussion point can just be a whole separate episode, I believe. But uh, yeah. non-creature, non-removal spells are very, very, very risky. Very bad in top deck mode. Not even that good when you cast it early. You need to carry it with something insane. And the pieces need to really line up for it to be good. Makes a lot of sense. Super cool. Next deck we've got is like sort of a white, black, blue, white, blink deck. So ways to get into this deck, you might see late white main lions or cloud shifts maybe on the wheel. So white main lion is the one and a white flash, uh, return a creature you control to your hand when it enters the battlefield. Cloud shifts, a single white mana instant to blink a creature. Uh, And then some of the cards you combine with those, Herbers Protector, four white, white for the one, one uh, that brings along a four, four flying angel token when it ETBs. Uh, Herbers Protector is a card that I see, you know, maybe picks five through eight that might lean me towards this deck. Obviously, Ravenous Chupacabra is insane in the white-black version. That's two black-black for the 2-2 when it ETBs destroy target creature. Griffin Protector has been really strong uh, in these decks, especially if you've got some uh, white main lions running around. So Griffin Protector is three and a white for the 2-3 flyer. Then when another creature enters the battlefield, it gets plus one, plus one. Dust Legion Zealots are kind of some minor value here. One in a black for the 1-1 one, one when it ETBs draw a card, lose a life. Um, so just getting late cards with enter the battlefield triggers and late cloud shifts or white main lions is a, is a good way to pick up some synergy in a white-black or a white-blue base deck. There's a blue-red spells deck floating around that I think works off the back of Pyrehound, which is three and a red for a 2-3 with Trample, and whenever you cast an instant or sorcery, you put a plus one plus one counter on it. Um, so I think you're using looking to pair that card with good spells, and blue and red have an abundance of those with counter spells or exclude. Um, in red, there's Kindle and Chandra's Outrage and Lightning Bolt, um, and you get... Uh, card draw to back up or to replace spells or to keep fueling spells for your your hand in a sift and accumulated knowledge uh, accumulated knowledge is one in a blue for the like kindle effect you draw a card and then draw a card for all accumulated knowledges in graveyards i don't think that card is particularly good accumulated knowledge i would rather just have two sifts in my deck than three or four accumulated knowledges Here's my argument for why in this particular deck I think that's not good is the four drop slot gets clogged fast because of Pyrehounds. Okay. I agree that Sift is a much better card, um, but being able to have the ability to pass with mana up with accumulated knowledge, like so you can go like, I'm going to counter your thing, or if you don't do that, then I get to draw a card, um, is better uh, in this particular deck than I think like stocking up on Sifts. So being able to operate at instant speed is pretty valuable? That's what I think, yeah. Okay. I I don't think this deck is like, crazy strong but i have seen good versions of it i like the pyrohound and instant synergy there seems pretty good there's also a red green stompy deck uh maz and i drafted this twice on stream yesterday mm-hmm. so zada hedron grinder does really well in this deck three and a green for the three three and whenever you cast an instant uh or sorcery that targets zada you get to copy it for each other creature you control so it works really well in tandem with pump effects. Iwamoria, the open fist, really shines here. The two green green for the 5-5 five, five trample. And when it ETBs, your opponent has the option to put a legendary creature from their hand into play. So you're just kind of praying they don't have one. Ember Weaver is really great in this deck. Two and a green for the 2-3 reach. And if you control a red permanent, it gets plus one, plus oh in first strike. Hedron Grinder and Iwamoria, you want to be picking up, you know, picks five through eight. You want to be trying to wheel your Ember Weaver's Mog Flunky. Uh, the one red for the 3-3 that has to attack with a friend or block with a friend. Rancor is a great way to get into this deck, uh, picking that up early. So just trying to leverage curving out with red and green cards backed up by a removal. Epic Confrontation really shines in this deck, the, the one in a green fight spell. Curving out dudes into tricks and removal and beating face. I really like this archetype. And uh, the reason why <laughs> is because you get a free cultivate at the start of the game, right? You're playing two mana 3-3s. 
you're playing three mana, three, three first strikes, and then you're playing four mana, five, fives. So you actually a turn ahead. All your creatures are just insanely powerful. And then, you know, uh, you just, you just beat them up, man. <laughs> they can't really, they can't really keep up with you, especially if you go first. That's, That's a super really, interesting. Yeah, I think you're going to make the same point that, that I would then. Go ahead. Well, just that you're talking about... I remember in uh, a, a Return to Ravnica on uh, Limited Resources, they would talk about how Unleash, this was a mechanic that as a creature came into play, you could put a plus and plus one counter on it, but then it wouldn't be able to block. Right. Um, so there were these, like, Dead Reveler was like a three mana three four with Unleash, or Splatter Thug was a three mana three three Unleash with First Strike. And they would say, like, this is evasion. Like, the black-red archetype, this unleash archetype, is evasion because the creatures are just so big. Like, you're a turn ahead, like what you're talking about here. I hadn't thought about that. Like, when you get to play a 2-mana 3-3 or a 4-mana 5-5, that you are essentially... You've already cast an Arbor Elf or a Utopia Sprawl or whatever for free. You are a land ahead. Yeah, and you can also still play Arbor Elf and be even more ahead, right? So there are some yeah. super stupid starts of uh, Red Grain. Uh, I really like this color pairing. <laughs> Yeah, and it was funny too when we looked at when we laid out our deck list. I looked at the deck list, and our deck like only has like four or five good cards, in my opinion, like that I would consider like premium cards. And it just felt bad to me. But all the cards worked really well together, and the the deck performed. I, I gotta give it. I gotta give it credit. I'm a convert. Yeah, I think the deck list ran like uh, two one drop goblins. There were two flunkies. There were three ember weavers, and um, you know, and, and a lot of like two drop three drop fillers, right? But those are the things we want to do best, right? Like, so hard to beat someone who goes 1-1 one, one Goblin, Flunkies, Ember Weaver, and that's it. Like, just it's just three cards, right? And then you feel like, wow, there's seven power on the board, and I can't even play only one creature to block this because there's, you know, a Goblin that makes it so that one of my creatures are uh, can't block, right? And then you just die in a couple of turns. Uh, just really no way to come back from that start. And heaven, for, heaven forbid you have removal to back that start up with. It's just unbeatable. Mm-hmm. I don't know. You guys, I mean, I, I hear you guys, but I, I feel like I gotta play devil's advocate because you guys are just living in some sort of like magical, magical Christmas land a little bit. Like, these decks don't curve out all the time. Like, you're talking about one drop, two drop, three drop. That doesn't happen every opener. Like, you're, and what, and your opponent can have disfigure for Mog Flunkies or for your, for not, for your fanatical goblin or whatever. Uh, Mog Fanatic that, what am I talking about? Frenzied Goblin. That's the card. Yeah. You know, they can have removal for that and then they have a creature that blocks. Like, your opponent will have answers to these starts. Yeah, so uh, I don't play too much magic um, constructed, I guess. But mm. this is very similar to the, like the mono red deck that uh, we have seen right now. And why why mono red will always have like a place? I feel like in um, in like a in the format, like aggro is basically always has a place, right? It's because they do a thing every single turn. And mm-hmm. when I played uh, when I played the pro tour, yeah, mono red will play a one drop and play a two drop and then turn three maybe two drop plus a one drop to kill your guy or whatever like you're under a lot of pressure and the fact that you have so much of these um one drops and two drops makes it so that yeah it actually happens quite often right and even if it doesn't your turn five play right so say you say you didn't draw these cards early game your turn five could literally be two two drops and a one drop and it's still fine so um yeah you've got to respect the aggro but how are you getting to turn five and playing two two drops and a one drop? Like, what happened on the previous turns? Um. Okay. So, like, did, wouldn't you have deployed those threats earlier? I don't. I, right. Yeah. Sure. But then sometimes, you know, uh, I think uh, when I drafted with uh, Ben, we did keep a lot of aggro hands with only a three drop and three lines. Right. There were like three drop, three drop, four drop, and with three lines, and we would have uh-huh. to keep that right because it's still limited. And then we would play three drop on turn three, four drop on turn four, and then five drop. We would play whatever that we had to draw on turn three that we couldn't play, and we would still 
be in control of the board, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I buy that. I buy that scenario. So we just laid out a number of the archetypes. I'm sure there, there are more that we, we hadn't touched on, but those are some that, that we've noticed in our first few drafts here. Um, we're going to get into some some overperformers and underperformers in a minute. Do we have any like general thoughts uh, from the week or, or other things that we hadn't touched on so far we want to get to? Mostly my, my quick thoughts are that you should never feel locked in early in the draft. There's so many playable in this format and they're so good that you really need to try to read what's open at the table, and that's probably going to be the best deck for you. And at this point, I'm trying to steer into like focused two-colored decks. That's what I think I want to be doing in the format right now, just with cards that are good curve and removal, cards that do things, like sort of you know limited resources has cabs, cards that affect the board strategy. Like I think that's where I'm at. Efficient dudes, synergy, and maybe leveraging synergy within that that cards that affect the board strategy. Mm-hmm. I think that's what's been the most successful for me so far. And just making sure that you draft a deck. Like your cards have to work together in tandem and have a focused goal. Sweet. And Maz, you got any general thoughts from the week? All right. Uh, so I thought this at the start, and I still believe this to be true, is that X1s are really strong. What deals two damage deals one damage anyways. Uh, sorry. What deals one damage deals two damage anyways, right? This figure, you have your Kindles and whatever. So... X1s are actually over-budgeted because their power would have shifted to something else like Crimson Mage gets a haste ability or Geist of the Moors gets one extra power. Three power flyers are not normally three cost, right? So that that also brings me to Spike Shot Goblin, which is actually insane. I think Spike Shot Goblin is the best uncommon on in red over Lightning Bolt just because of this reason that X1s are really strong. And my second point is that you really want to pick up your sideboard cards really, really like a bit faster, I guess, because they're actually like blowout. Uh, we talk about red and blue elemental glass, uh, which is just like one mana kill something, right? Which is insane. Uh, Core Firewalker is a good um, example. And Pyroclasm, which basically is Wrath of God against some decks. So I, I really <laughs> like sideboard cards. Uh, they're really, really powerful. I don't like the sideboard cards that don't do much, like Disenchant, for example, or like even Plummet is not in the level of these cards. So um, the good sideboard cards can just win you games two and three, like really, really easily. Yeah, the the color hosers, especially the the red, blue blasts and the firewalkers, those are are really tough things uh, to to bring out of the board for games two and three. I think. All right, Ben, you've got some some overperformers here for us to take a look at. Yeah, we've hit on a lot of these already. One that sticks out uh, is Living Death. I have not had the pleasure of playing this card yet, but everyone keeps posting 3-0 deck lists with like, got Living Death 4th pick, got Living Death 8th pick. Like mm-hmm. That card's insane. So this is 3 black black, and it basically fl- uh, switch- switches creatures that are in the graveyard and on the battlefield. Card's a bomb. Don't pass it and draft your deck around it if you do get it. Squadron Hawk's been impressive. I think that's a very, I think it's in my top three white commons now. I have it as number three. Uh, it goes very well in what white's trying to do, I think. Yeah, I think Skyhawk is good, but yeah, you have to you have to pick them up really early, right? I think uh, I also have it in my top three, but uh, you have to you have to kind of dive into a little bit. It's like we we keep on saying like you have to be kind of open and draft and whatnot. But if you see a Squadron Hawk, I think if I pass one, I'm not on the Squadron Hawk train anymore. The Living Death one, I think it's the best card in the format. It's better than your Jace and whatnot. It, it's it's the best card. <laughs> Yeah, that card is a bomb. Yeah. I've recently developed a, a love affair with Nick's Fleece Ram, although it might have gone away a little bit after drafting with Amaz yesterday, but I think <laughs> Nick's Fleece Ram. So this is 
one and a white with an O5 that gains you a life every turn is really good in any sort of a controlling deck or a flyers deck. Although we we played some aggro decks that beat a Nix Fleece Ram on the other side of the battlefield yesterday. So, I, however, I do still think uh, that's a premium card in a controlling deck. We've talked about Cloud Shift and White Main Lion a lot in the Blink decks. Blood Hunter Bat has really pulled its weight. This is three and a black for the two two flyer that drains two when it enters the battlefield. It rebuys you time if you're a little bit behind. It trades off. Uh, it's something your opponent doesn't want to balance with a mana war or things like that. It just does a lot of work. It's also such an efficient and effective game winner for aggro decks. Like, it comes in and gives you two damage, and it's an evasive threat to close out the game to get those last two, four, six points of damage you need You need to take care of. I think it's a really strong card in aggro decks. Yeah, Caustic Tar has been great out of the sideboard. I don't know that I really want to main deck this, but this four black black for the enchant land, and the land now has tap. Target player loses three life. I think you can mm-hmm. really pull that in to punish the control decks because a lot of times they don't have an answer for that type of cards yeah this caustic tar is more of a it's like seeker of the hidden way uh that costs a little bit more and can't be removed so mystic of the hidden way is four and a blue for the three two unblockable with morph yeah right. zula port cutthroat's been great we've talked about that a bunch unearth i think pulls its weight in these black decks with zula port cutthroat and frexing ghoul so unearth is single black return target creature with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to play really helps rebuy those combo pieces in Frexian Ghoul and Zulaport Cutthroat. All the cheap black aggressive cards I think have done a lot more work than I thought they would have in mono black aggro decks or black red aggro decks or whatever. Pyrehound has been good in black red decks with removal spells. That's three and a red for the two three that gets plus one plus one counter whenever you cast a spell. Cultivate I think is good in the multicolored control decks but I'm a little down on Cultivate uh, after our discussions today I think. I still think it's a super powerful card though and is an enabler for that archetype but maybe be wary when you're putting that in your deck and I think uh ethan you were talking about number of number of lands in in decks with cultivate or prisms what were you saying about that well this is uh, i'm just sort of regurgitating uh, a thought that ryan had for me so i think my second deck had like a i think maybe a, a prism and a, a number of, of land cyclers and a cultivate or an arbor elf and a utopia sprawl like all of these cards that made mana and he was like you this deck is like 15 or 14 lands and that like seemed crazy to me in a control deck because i'm like well i never want to miss my land drops or whatever he's like you just have basically so many things that also make mana in your deck that you can't so i think in these decks where you have a number of land cyclers or prisms or cultivates or or anything like that that 15 lands is is where you want to be because otherwise you're you're going to flood out and you will get super punished by by aggressive or assertive decks oh man (laughs) Uh uh-oh so i think um i think playing anything below 17 lands for for your decks are usually a mistake like the cycling things make sense, right? Where like you know you can always pitch a pitch one of the unplayable cards for a land or something like that, but mm-hmm. you're still not doing anything that turn, right? So like if yeah. you imagine that your dream situation, like your dream hand and your dream draws and whatnot, you do not want to be cycling on turn two, right? You need to you want to find your one two drop, your one three drop at those turns, and then when it's turn six, you just keep on playing six drop after six drop and stuff like that. So um, no, I don't want to miss any land drops at all and even in my very aggressive decks i don't usually go 16 lines unless my curve topper is at four right uh like even if i have like single skeletonize or like a single five drop or whatever i would still play 17 lines playing games of magic is very important i think being consistent over a lot of games is very important and um you know you, you need lands to play your spells uh so i would never play a 15 line deck Okay, uh, I I'm just, we may have to just agree to disagree here, but uh, I think that these decks that have things that draw you lands or make more mana, like Arbor Elf or Utopia Sprawl or Cultivate, 
or the basic land cyclers are extra copies of lands in your deck. And so you're effectively playing like 20 lands when you run 15 lands, you know? Uh, so I think when you run more than that, you have a much stronger tendency to flood, which those decks cannot afford to do. All right. On with some other overperformers. Uh, we've talked about Rancor. That's been great. And then, Ethan, you've got some others here at the bottom of the list. Uh, yeah, I put Ancient Craving on, on here, uh, which uh, I think after this uh, conversation may, may need to be removed. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I think that in decks that don't have access to, to other sources of card advantage, um, that Ancient Craving drawing three is good. I had some people being like in, in stream being like, whoa. Whoa, drawing three, losing three life. Well, if you're able to stem some bleeding or recoup that life loss, I think a three for one is, is quite strong. Lunark Mantle, that's the one and a white aura to give a creature plus two, plus two, and you can pay one to sacrifice a permanent to give that creature flying. Uh, I thought at the start that this card was like going to be nearly unplayable, but it has a lot of synergies with token decks, and it's another sacrifice outlet uh, to turn on your Promise of Bunray or to kill a creature that you've active treasoned. And as Amaz said, like, you know, you're not getting blown out by bounce at, at instant speed. Um, and so if you can sort of, if you're trying to just do this for value for plus two, plus two, or to get an evasive threat to turn it into a, a flyer with the sacrifice outlet, I think this just has a lot of good applications that you're not going to get punished for if you are smart when you play it. We've talked a lot about Mog Flunkies and Frenzied Goblin today, but those cards, I think Ben and I probably came in not loving those cards and are now uh, much higher on them. I have, again, skeletonized I put on this. This is a three, four and a red for the deal three damage if you kill that creature you make a 1-1 regenerating skeleton token. This card I thought was not going to be good, but especially in these like mid-range or multicolor control decks that I've been playing, it's like better than things like uh, Pacifism or Pillory of the Sleepless. I think that like getting a creature dead, especially a utility creature on the other side of the board, and then being able to get a 1-1 that can block or trade with something is really powerful. So we want to run through top commons and uncommons for each color. I think first we should we should hear what Amaz's top commons and uncommons are, and then we'll run through uh, Ethan and mine and where we've switched slightly from last week. Sure. All right. Sounds good. I will start with my uh, the best colors, I think. Uh, so I, I think uh, black and green are the best. So for black, my number one common is murder, which is three mana destroy target creature. Uh, this co- is double black. And the second uh, one is Disfigure. For single black, you get to give a creature minus two, minus two. So, you know, the top two commons are removal spells. And the number three common is Phyrexian Ghoul. It's a three mana two, two that you can sack creature to give it plus two, plus two. I think that's exactly where I'm at too. Yep, me too. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, black just offers two of the best removals in, uh, in one mana and three mana. And it's just super efficient. So I am very down with that. And my second favorite color in this set is green. I have Epic Competition in number one. That's two mana. Uh, A creature gets plus one, plus two, and fights another creature you don't control at sorcery speed. Number two is Arbor Elf. For a single green, you get to untap target forest, and it's a one-one. And number three, I have Giant Growth, an instant that gives a creature plus three, plus three for a single green. Yeah, awesome. Mine, mine go Epic Confrontation 1. I think I've got Cultivate at number 2, 2 and a green for even still, I think, after our discussions today, because I think it is really important for the, the green deck that wants to splash. 2 and a green, search 2 basic lands up, put 1 in your hand and 1 on the battlefield tapped, and then I've got number 3, Arbor Elf, the single green 1-1. One, one. Yeah, I'm I'm also diverging here, though I think I'm, I'll, I'll stick with what I have, but I think it's just, I'm going to put a caveat of like, I don't have Epic Confrontation in my top three because I haven't been drafting these assertive green decks. My green decks are much more like multicolor based. And so 
I have access to better removal, and I also don't often have like creatures on board like we talked about. Um, so I think I would probably need to revise this once I start drafting these th- those kinds of decks. Um, but I have Arbor Elf first, Cultivate second, and then I have Elvish Aberration. That's the six drop, four five that taps for three green, but also has forest cycling for two, uh, and that's my number three. All right. And yeah, those two are my favorites because there's a lot of interaction and there's a lot of powerful creatures, like besides even the top three, right? Uh, All the creatures are very beefy. So uh, yeah, that's good. And then my uh, third color that I like is red. Uh, I have Kindle, number one, Chandra's Outrage, number two, and Hordling Opus, number three. Although that's just evaluating the cards by itself, right? Um, for more flunkies and frenzy goblin, I think it's like the <laughs> one of the subjects of uh, today's episode is that the first one <laughs> is not that good. Okay, like the first more flunkies you pay, but the first frenzy goblin pick is not that exciting. But the second Moth Flunkies is a B. The third one is a B plus, And then you start to get into these A ranges that are like, wow, this card is just even better than like, you know, whatever bomb you can think of because they get better in multiples, right? So yeah. um, there's a little, you know, asterisk on this top three commons. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I've got the exact same top three commons. And yeah, I have a newfound appreciation for Mog Flunkies and Frenzy Goblin. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And then uh, onwards to blue once again this is a little asterisk i have manowar in the number one i think this is just great uh for number two i have shoreline ranger it's the six mana three four flyer that can island cycle for two and then on number three i have counterspell the counterspell which is double blue for counter target spell at instance yeah i've got uh slightly different top blue commons i've got manowar at number one counterspell at number two and then i have ghost ship two blue blue for the two four flyer with regen for triple blue as my number three yeah i've got manowar counterspell and then i don't I'm not sure between sift and ghost ship but i feel like i'm gonna get shamed if i put sift in my top three commons <laughs> oh, today so so I'll I'll, I'll 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 side with ghost ship for now i actually don't think it's uh big shame to put uh sift if you believe the format is uh like works that way like i think uh, there's different approaches to drafting that works out well like for example i think amass the components in one of the other master set was definitely a top three blue common right it was just so oh, powerful yeah. so i mean sift is basically a better amass the components right you get to put something in your yard and uh mm-hmm. there's more synergies that way so it really depends on your approach to the format i guess yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we're clearly showing like what our preferences are. Uh, you and I are on, on pretty different ends of the spectrum. But I think the fact that those decks exist in the format, that there are really strong, aggressive, assertive decks in the format, makes my love for the, the more multicolor, slower decks a bit worse because like I'm often not well-suited for those matchups. You know? Oh yeah, I agree with that. What was your asterisk on the blue, the blue commons? Oh, was? my asterisk for the blue commons is that this is just, once again, evaluating the card by itself, right? I think, uh, you know, blue can be a very temple-colored deck, right? You have, like, the Phantasmal Bear. You have your, um, uh, the Mystic of the Secret Way. Oh, God. Mystic of the Hidden Way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the unblockable card, which is, like, a very good way to close up the game, right? It, it even is better than Shoreline Ranger in some cases because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it doesn't really matter if they're Flyers or whatnot, but, like, two toughness on a five-mana five creature is a little iffy, I guess. But uh, yeah, I think um, blue is also like all over the place, just like red is. Yeah. All right. And finally, the last color I have is white. I think white is not the strongest for me, but 
my number one, and if I do draft this card, I will be in white, Geist of the Moors. The three mana, double white uh, creature. It's a three mana, three one flyer. Very, very powerful. Hits really hard. Uh, number two, I have Pacifism. Two mana, white aura that makes something can't attack or block. And finally, Squadron Hawk uh, at number three. Two mana, one one flyer. You play it, you can search up to three copies of it, put it into hand, but you can effectively search all your copies because you can play another one, search all of those up, and so on. Sweet. Uh, for my top white commons, I've got I think number one. These are these are sketchy. I have to. I, have, I might have to rethink my top white commons. But currently, I've got Path of Peace number one in a control deck. Pacifism number two in an aggro deck. So I think you want Path of Peace in a control deck. I think you want Pacifism in an aggressive deck. And I've got Squadron Hawk as my number three. Yeah, I, I like that order as well. I, I'm pretty not crazy about pacifism and, and pillory of the sleepless just because i think there's a lot of utility stuff and a lot of ways to pick creatures back up like if you've got cloud shift or white main lion or mana war to bounce it but it still is super efficient and cheap and and can get the job done and i like your your caveat here ben about aggro it's definitely good in an in a assertive deck to be able to double spell with pacifism Oh yeah, pacifism definitely seems a little bit worse than it normally is in a limited set. I am not off pillory though. Uh, I think pillar of sleepless, which is the one white black enchantment that is basically a pacifism, but with an added uh, at the beginning of their upkeep, they lose a life. Right? Uh, this doubles up as a it's, a it's like a win condition, right? So you have to have them you know respond to it. So I don't mind pillory as much. I think pillory would be a high pick for me if I am actually in white black. Yeah, it, it gives you a win condition in and of itself, in a way, or a way to close out a game as well. For sure. Oh, sorry. If this is in the wrong spot, I don't know, but it just came up that when you guys were talking about archetypes for white-black, you were like, oh, white-black is like the blink deck, right? I think the best white-black deck is actually white-black aggro, where you play like Savannah Lions, Vampire Lacerator, uh, and then you have a lot of cards to protect these one-drops, so like white main Lion, Cloud, Cloud Shift, and whatnot, and your curve actually ends somewhere like three. Hmm. So yeah, that that deck is I think it's very very strong uh, because you're playing one mana two twos and you're just beating up your opponent and Lunok Mantle becomes insane because it's one of the wind right <laughs> and you want to play one of the wind in your <laughs> Merfolk decks so that's a that's an archetype I really like. I yeah. just lost to that deck last night on stream. Awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Got it. Aggro decks are great, man. All right. So we're on to the uncommons, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll go and order this one. So for white, uh, number one common is Source to Plowshares. Single white exile or creature. They gain life equal to its toughness. And uh, number two is Fiend Hunter, uh, which is the, you know, the three mana double white uh, creature. It's a one three. Enters the battlefield, exiles something, exiles hard creature, and, and, and then when it leaves the battlefield, it brings it back. Mm -hmm. Same for us. Oh, yeah. Just very efficient. One mana, kill something, you can double spell that turn. And Fiend Hunter is just, you know, same thing. Pretty and, and adds a creature on the board. Very nice. For blue, number one is Murder of Crows. Five mana, four, four flyer that you get to loot every time another creature dies, uh, not just your own. And 5 mana 4 4's flyers are just insane, right? right? And at number 2 mm -hmm. is Merfolk Looter, uh, 2 mana 1 1, uh, and it taps to loot. So you basically get to sculpt your hand, and you get to have a very consistent game. Yeah. Yep, same for us. All right, perfect. Exactly ours. Oh, man, awesome. All right, now we're on to black. Uh, black number 1 is the Ravenous Chupacabra, of course. It's uh, 4 mana 2 2, double black, uh, and just a battlefield, destroy entire creature, opponent controls... This is just ridiculous. And number <laughs> two, I mean, we came from Ixalab. We know it's ridiculous. And then um, number two is Zulaport Cutthroat for me. Once again, it's a two mana, one, one, that when another creature dies or Zulaport Cutthroat dies, on your side of the battlefield, uh, you get to drain one 
from your opponent. I've got those same top uncommons. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. All right, all hits the green. Uh, number one is Rancor for me. Uh, it's the single green enchantment. Give a creature plus two plus O and trample. And when this is put into the graveyard of the battlefield, you get to return it to your hand. What you do is you just suit up one creature, just keep on beating with that one creature, and then your opponent has can't even chump block. They still take damage. So really, really strong card. And number two would be Irwal Mori of the Open Fist. For four mana, uh, you get a 5-5 five five of Trample. It's double green. And when it enters the battlefield, your opponent can put a legendary creature they own onto the battlefield if they have one. I think I've got the same order. I think you might be different here, Ethan. No, I- I'm good here on Rancor into Iwamori. I-, I have a question for you guys. Have you been keeping track of how often you g- get a free creature when someone casts Iwamori? I think about a third of the time, maybe. I have. I Every time I cast Iwamori, uh, my opponent's never put a legendary permanent. And uh, I remember on the streamer showdown, <laughs> I put up uh, Darien after my opponent cast Iroboy. So at the end of the day, I feel like it's still a 4 mana 5-5 with Trample, which is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So even if your opponent has a Legendary, that's like the worst case situation, they're going to cast it anyways. So it's not like it's uh, as bad as you think. And it only happens like 10% of the time, you know? I'm on 3 for 6. I've seen oh, this yes. card cast six. I've seen this card cast six times. Not not that it's happened to me, but I've seen it All cast right. six times on either my games or watching streams, and I've seen three free cards. But I think it's closer to like thinking about it like wanted scoundrels or something. Like you're getting an insane rate for uh, a creature, and if your opponent plays their legendary creature, you're like basically giving them like four free mana or something. But you're not like really giving them a card because that card was already in their hand. Oh yeah. But I do I do think, I thought this was not going to happen very often. I wonder if there's listeners out there who've been keeping track of this because I'd be, be curious to know how, how often it happens. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, any creature that's overstated uh, is worth having a closer uh, scrutiny because uh, the downside could be very, very bad and it would still be good. Yeah. And for red, my number one uncommon is Spike Shot Goblin. For three mana, uh, you get a one-two goblin, I guess. Uh, you can pay a single red, tap it, and it will deal its damage in its power to target creature or player. So it basically shoots something without them shooting back. And my number two is uh, Lightning Bolt. So a single red, deal three damage to any target. I think I've got those flip-flopped. I think I've got Lightning Bolt and Spike Shot Goblin. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so um, I love Spike Shot Goblin. I think it's super well suited in the format. There are a lot of ways to pop it up. There's a Psy, the equipment uh, that gets plus one plus one. There's also Rancor. And when you equip the Special Goblin with it, it becomes ridiculous, right? And yeah. um, this also brings me back to, like, would you pick a Tetsumok? Or would you pick, like, you know, a Black Hill spell? Like, you know, I don't know. Like, uh... imagine if Murder was in Rivals Exalon, right? Like, would you pick Tetsumok or would you pick Murder? Like, I would always pick Tetsumok, right? Because it's like a big bomb. Mm-hmm. It's kind of beautiful. And that's similar to how I feel with Spike Shot Goblin. Uh, if it's on the board, your opponent needs to deal with it. And Lightning Bolt is like a, it's like a glorified Kindle. So I'm not on that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. All right. And uh, I had I colorless too. I don't know if you guys do colorless or not, <laughs> but I think uh, I, I think I can just say that Perilous Mirror is actually um, very very important colorless creature that deserves a special shout out to because it blocks fear creatures. I think it's uh, one way to actually beat the black decks that uh, really hit you hard, and uh, it also has the chance of training two for one. Yeah, agree. Sweet. 
All right, that's an awesome place to wrap up the episode here. Thank you so much for being on, Amaz. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. That was a fun time. Fantastic guest, super cool, uh, interesting ways of thinking about limited. Yeah, for sure. Not nice to put myself in check with my durable nonsense. Every now and again. <laughs> for sure. So next week, we're going to be looking forward to more Masters 25. And as always, thank you to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. Make sure you give it a listen. Amaz, where can people get in touch with you or watch your stream or, you know, find out more about what you're doing? I'm at twitch.tv slash AmazHS. Uh, I play mainly Hearthstones on weekdays. And uh, on Twitter, I'm just Amaz. And I'm pretty sure if you Google my name, you can find my YouTube channel and Facebook and, you know, all those different stuff. So thanks for checking me out. Yeah, if you want to get in touch with me or Ben, you can come rate our streams as well. I'm at twitch.tv slash lordtupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash mrmetronome. Both of us are on those same handles on Twitter, so tweet at us. And we also have a Twitter account for the podcast, at Lords of Limited. Uh, if you've got any feedback about the show or any questions, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. And... A big announcement for the week. We have our 15-hour stream locked for the Treasure Hunt achievement list for Rivals of Ixalan. So we're going to be doing our 15-hour stream on Monday, March 26th from 9 a.m. to midnight Eastern Standard Time. We'll be doing probably a mixture of Masters and Rivals. Uh, we'll be doing some giveaways, more to be announced there. And we'll be doing them half on my stream, half on Ben's stream. So uh, just keep posted on Twitch or Twitter for more details about that. But we're super, super excited to get to do that this time. Thanks, everybody, and see you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. See you later. Bye. Love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 